listening to The Purple Stethoscope. I am your host, Devin Nixon, family nurse practitioner. None of the information in this podcast is sufficient nor intended to diagnose your personal medical issue, but there's a lot to learn, so let's start the show. You may recall me saying in previous episodes that I wanted to be a nurse practitioner since I was 14 years old. I'm not sure if I ever really went in to why, and so I wanted to take a moment and do that now. I was 14 years old when my father was diagnosed with both diabetes and hypertension. Not only was the diagnosis devastating, but trying to navigate the healthcare system was so difficult. Understanding how to take medicines, what to expect from the medicines, how often to follow up, etc., was really just a whole new world. And it was a world that I felt like I needed to understand so that I could help my dad. Fast forward, and um, I became a nurse, but I didn't become a nurse just so that I could, you know, have a good job, have job security, um, you know, work 312s and have the other four days with my family. I really became a nurse with the intention of becoming a nurse practitioner and a nurse practitioner with the intention of doing my very best to fulfill this dream that I have. And the dream that I have is that each and every one of us would have access to affordable health care and health education. You can have all the access that you want, but if you don't understand how to use what's available to you, it doesn't matter. It's kind of like money. I used to think that if we made enough money, money wouldn't be an issue. But what I learned is that money needs to be controlled. Money in and of itself is not going to do anything for you. It's a tool. And if you don't know how to use the tool, you'll end up making a bigger mess than you had to begin with. A lot of people have access to health care and no idea how to use it. And even more people have never had access to health care and still don't and don't know how to use it. So the whole purpose of me becoming a nurse practitioner uh, was to really be able to help the people around me who um, were being diagnosed with chronic diseases to understand how to take care of themselves, how to navigate the healthcare system, and how to understand their diagnoses. Um, so that was why, or that is why, 14 was the age that uh, I, I really committed to learning about this field. My best friend's mother was a nurse at a local hospital, and she was very encouraging and, you know, told me, yeah, you should, you should definitely become a nurse. Um, but also, my dad and I would have these conversations, and I kind of created this job title that I wanted. And 
and it was, it was, I'm like embarrassed to say this, but I shouldn't be because what 14 year old is thinking like this, right? I said, I wanted to be a new onset diagnosis counselor. I wanted to be the person that someone would be scheduled to go and see after they were diagnosed with a chronic illness. The person that would sit down with them, find out what they know, answer questions they might have, and explain to them what the diagnosis meant, how we treat it or manage it, and what they could do to slow progression of disease. Crazy, right? That's not really a thing, a new onset diagnosis counselor. But it's kind of what I'm doing now. I work in cardiology during the day and I get patients who have new diagnoses of coronary artery disease, heart failure, different arrhythmias, and I literally get to sit and spend that time with them doing exactly what I hoped to someday be able to do um, over 20 years ago. I'm saying all this to say I've been doing this NP unit installment, and these are episodes of the podcast where I talk with a nurse practitioner about what they're doing in their neck of the woods. These are really important episodes because these nurse practitioners may be in your neck of the woods. I always put a link in the show notes to where you can find them and follow what they're doing. And if you live in that community, have access to these awesome people who are providing care where you are. So please don't just listen to these episodes for entertainment. Um, Although I can't imagine these are very entertaining as much as they are educating. But think about where you're at. Think about, is there somebody in your neighborhood who's providing a similar service? A lot of these folks are doing direct patient care or they're doing affordable cash only. Some people are taking insurance. Find these people if they're close to you and reach out so that you can establish care because if things like hypertension or diabetes or other chronic illnesses run in your family, then you really want to get in front of that. You want to be armed with the prevention knowledge, the things that you need to be doing and incorporating as habits to prevent yourself from ever ending up with that diagnosis. And if you can't, early diagnosing is ideal. You want to know that you have and are dealing with something as soon as you have and are dealing with something. So um, yeah, I just wanted to stress that to you. Um, My dad was 30 when I was born, so he was about 44 um, when these things were happening. So you don't have to be old, um, but you do have to be aware. And uh, I just hope that whoever is listening is sharing these episodes, is taking some notes down, is sharing the information with friends and family members who are going to benefit from that information. Now, 
I'm excited to introduce my next guest. Her name is Shamika Brooks, and she is a nurse practitioner in the Dallas-Fort Worth area of Texas. She is the owner of Incure Wellness, and you can find them at incurewellnesscenter.com. I'll put that in the show notes. Shamika specializes in infectious disease. She's part of the Dallas HIV Task Force and loves to educate on HIV, um, who needs to get tested and how often, as well as how to access pre-exposure prophylaxis, also known as PrEP. Now, don't tune out. Now, some of you may be thinking that this episode is not for you because you're HIV negative, your partner's negative, and so on and so forth. I really want to encourage you to stick around and to listen because we always learn something. And whether we know it or not, we are around people living, working, um, worshiping, uh, kids hanging out with and playing with people who are living with HIV or at risk for uh, contracting HIV. And ignorance is one of the most hurtful things that we can operate in. The things that we say when we don't know, the ways that we act when we don't know, can really deeply affect people, even people that we love and would never in a million years want to hurt. So stick around because you'll learn something. Stick around because knowledge is power. You'll be able to talk with your children or your friends or your network about some ways that they can keep themselves healthy. Stick around because this is a disease that disproportionately affects poor people and people of color. And because Shamika is just an awesome, awesome person whose energy you will love. She's awesome at what she does, and she is here to teach those of us who are not immersed in the world of infectious disease. Without further ado, I'm going to go ahead and let you all listen in to my conversation with Shamika Brooks. Hello, Shamika. Hello, I'm so excited um, to be on the podcast today. I'm so glad to have you. How have you been since we talked last? I have been very, very busy. I am a woman that likes to have multiple things going on at the same time. And it just keeps me going. And it's like I thrive under pressure. Yeah, I hear you. I think a lot of us have that in common, you know, in this (laughs) industry at least. You got to be a little yes. crazy to be a nurse, right? <laughs> yes. Queen of multitasking, which they say is not really the best thing to do, but it works for me. There you go. We got to do what works for us. I'm throwing my multitasking hat in because what I find a lot is that I have to do something or I'll start doing something and forget I was doing it and never get back to Can you tell the listeners a little bit about your education, your work history, how you got to where you are now, and what it is you're doing now? 
Yes. So I knew early on as a child that I wanted to do something in healthcare. Initially, I wanted to be a physician, but I had a class. um, It was like Health Occupation Students of America, HOSA. And that was my junior year. I was a part of the uh, group and in the class. And I had a teacher who was a registered nurse. And he told me about um, this advanced practice nursing uh, known as a nurse practitioner. And so in my mind, I was like, okay, I can go to school for a shorter amount of time and still be able to impact patients' lives and be able to do something that I'm totally interested in. So for my junior year in high school, I knew that I wanted to be a nurse practitioner. So everything I did from that point on was to set myself up for that. So um, I got a job as a CNA right out of high school. And when I went to college, I worked as a CNA. And then um, while I was in nursing school, I worked as a CNA up until I got my registered nurse license. And then after that, I knew that I wanted to be a nurse practitioner. So I continued to pursue my education and got my bachelor's degree. And then I got my master's. And I'm so excited to finally have accomplished a goal that I set out so long ago. I was able to do my clinical preceptorship at a large county hospital in Dallas, and it's a teaching hospital. So I I was able to be in an academic environment and learn a lot. And awesome enough, I was able to secure a job in the clinical setting where I did my preceptorship. Are you FNP? Are you family nurse practitioner? Or because you said in the clinical setting, but you were in a teaching hospital. Yes. So the teaching hospital, the way it's set up is they have um, outpatient clinics. So it's a closed system. So I was able to do all of my clinical preceptor hours at an outpatient clinic connected to the hospital. So yes, I'm family nurse practitioner certified. Awesome. That's awesome. And you have your own business now. Yes, Yes. I do. Can you tell the (laughs) listeners a little bit about what you're doing? Okay, so I've been working in my current position um, at the hospital um, clinic for about almost four years now. And I love what I do. I love interacting with the patients, my patient population. So um, the unique thing about my patient population is that they're all living with HIV, And a lot of people are not aware because, you know, the epidemic of HIV and AIDS was really big in the 80s and 90s. We've made so many advances in uh, technology and in um, the medications that we give our patients now that this is basically a chronic disease that I manage. So um, in this clinic, I love, like I said, I love what I do. I love the patients. I love the patient interaction. But unfortunately, when you work for a large corporation, there are certain restrictions on what you can do and what time is allotted for what you want to do. So out of my desire to um, improve my patients' lives and improve patient interaction, I have decided that I want to venture out on and start my own clinic. And the one thing that um, will distinguish my clinic from 
others is that I want it to be all encompassing where patients that are living with HIV do not have to be shunned or stigmatized or separated. I can treat them just like I treat my regular primary care patients all in the same setting to help reduce stigma. Absolutely. That's awesome. I got to do a rotation um, in a about four months in an HIV clinic, and it was amazing. I was right away faced with uh, things that I had come to believe that I didn't actively seek to believe, but um, found out right away, like, whoa, where did I get that from? Where did I get this from? Um, so many different ideas about HIV, who's at risk, um, what it means to get that diagnosis. A lot of people, I think, think of HIV as just a death sentence. It's just the worst thing that can happen to anybody health-wise. And I would say firmly and confidently that is not the case. I can think of a lot of other things that are um, far more detrimental because, like you said, of the advancement of medicine. Um, so if we could um, transition and, and talk a little bit about HIV, I think that would be awesome. I know you're part of the Dallas HIV Task Force. Um, I know that you are working with people who are living with HIV. But even prior to that, can we touch on testing? Who should be tested? Who should be screened? Uh, at what age should we start to pay attention to that? Because one of the things that I noticed in family practice, HIV screening is not routine for any patient population except pregnancy. And I think be, the, the detriment of that is that you have to ask. As a patient, you have to be the one. It's so much easier when the provider is the one saying, hey, have we screened you for this? Let's go ahead and put it on the list. Then being in that position as the patient where you have to say, hey, I was wondering, can I get a a test to be screened for HIV? So who needs to be screened? How often? Can you speak to that? Yes, I can. So the United States um, Public Task Force has come out with a grade A recommendation that anybody ages 13 to 65 is the age range they put on it should basically be tested for HIV, at least annually, regardless of their risk factor. But in my own personal opinion, I believe that anyone who's ever had sex or having sex should be tested annually. I was first tested pregnant, and I had three. I have three children. I've been tested three times with pregnancy. But, you know, when I first set out to be tested uh, outside of being pregnant, I was surprised, and I want to say this was like 2011, I was surprised at how um, I was treated. First of all, I'm, I don't use um, injectable drugs. Um, I'm not a homosexual male. I don't participate in the types of um, intercourse that are more risky for contracting it. And I'm married. And so after they asked me all those screening questions, they kind of looked at me like, well, why are you here? And I felt kind of 
funny. I was like, this is an awkward, I'm here because of the statistics that I hear that my group, my demographic being a black woman is, is uh, one of the top every year, if not the top uh, group for new cases. I know what I'm doing. I can be 100% sure of my of what I'm doing, but nobody can be sure of what their partner is doing. No shade to my to my man, you know, nothing like that. I just <laughs> it was just I was kind of taken aback how I had to really kind of fight for like advocate for myself just to get a test. Um, is that common, or do you think things have changed over the past decade and it's a lot easier now? No, I think the attitude that you speak of in which a lot of healthcare providers approach this type of situation is still similar, unfortunately. So the barrier to getting more people tested is actually convincing the providers that they need to be testing, you know? So I think the situation you describe is perfectly, you know, still the same, unfortunately. Okay. Wow. And it wasn't, it's not an easy thing. It's one of the most nerve wracking things you can do. I was recently in New Orleans um, at Essence Fest. I had a blast. I met some wonderful people and I met one young man who was on the human rights task force and we got to talking and we got to talking about um, prep and, and sexuality and what, um, what medical providers don't know, which was interesting. I learned a lot in that four-month rotation because we also had a lot of transgender patients and um, it can be difficult to um, keep a transgender man on the screening and preventative schedule for things like pap smears and mammograms and, you know, people kind of a lot of times don't want to address that part of their being because they don't identify with those parts. Um, so I learned a lot and, and vice versa, hormones, we doing every, we're doing everything, you know, hormones <laughs> for transgender men, hormones for transgender women, people wanting to get pregnant, um, etc. And so we were talking about this in New Orleans, me and this young man. And he said to me, and he, he was a gay male, he identified as... Um, as male and, and he was homosexual. And he said he got tested one time in college. And, you know, when he thought back about his experience, he couldn't believe that it just wasn't that accessible for him. And he was a black man. And so we started talking about, you know, what, what do we need? I, I was asking him like, okay, I'm a nurse practitioner. I see patients every day. I don't know that I want to just presume that you're not being tested. If you were my patient, I don't know if I'm going to say coming out of the gate, hey, when was the last time you had your HIV test? And he said it would have been so much easier if someone had, you know, because that was something that he was living with all through college, wondering, you know. So I forgot. I lost track of what my question even was. Listen. <laughs> <laughs> no, and, and you were just talking about the importance, you know, of the healthcare providers wanting to test. Now, certain state laws may um, require that you do have to get the patient to consent, but basically the way you approach that consent, you know, uh, agreement with the patient is saying, hey, I do this for all my patients. You know, and basically this is just a part of your annual physical exam. Mm -hmm. 
And so that's the way you can approach it if you feel uncomfortable, you know, presenting this to the patient. Right. I remember what it was now. He had wished someone would have broached the subject because he was a, a good candidate for prep. And oh. he didn't know about how to bring it up or how to, you know, ask the questions. He didn't really know what to do. Now, um, the beautiful part of that story is he's very active in getting programs on campus and getting uh, programs at HBCUs where that information is readily available. So that's, that's really cool, but it was just like, wow, okay, a lot of times we hold back because we don't want to be offensive, so to speak, but really the person on the other side is like, I need help navigating this, like, just be real, um, which I definitely... And a lot of times people, like you said, they don't know how to ask, and, you know, there was one situation where I had a patient who identified um, as a homosexual male initially when I saw him. And then he came in one day and I was very observant of his appearance. And he was more, um, his, 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 he had nails, you know, his appearance had right. changed. He was more feminine right. in his appearance. And so rather than me, um, you know, just ignoring that aspect of him and and knowing what he came in um, and that his uh, appearance was different, I kind of asked him, I said, well, you know, had you ever thought about um, going into hormone therapy or do you have any thoughts or ideas of transitioning? He was so grateful that I even brought the subject up because he was almost in tears because right. he didn't know how to ask right. for that. Right. Oh, and I was funny. able to tap into that and know because the beautiful thing about working in healthcare, and I don't take this for granted, is that you can build a relationship and a rapport with these individuals. And I view them as human beings, first of all, okay. you know, and I tap into their energy and I really want to basically empower them to right. be, you know, informed healthcare consumers and also to take ownership of their body and their healthcare yeah. and to seek out the information that they need. So I empower him in that moment. So it's just going to take a lot of education, I think, with healthcare providers to yeah. get them to that point. And, and I, I believe there should be some mandatory education for primary care practitioners around surrounding the subject of HIV care and gender care and, and things of that nature. Um, and and I, I just, I love what you said in that example because people come and they are very, um, you know, apprehensive sometimes to um, share certain things or to ask for certain things. But I wish that patients really understood that we're here to serve. We are here to serve. We don't have an agenda. You're our agenda as a patient. So what is it that you need? How can we be of service to you? I love that story. Um, can we talk about prep for a little bit? I've said it several times in this episode, and sometimes um, I get feedback. Hey, you're using these acronyms, and you're saying this stuff we don't understand. you got to make it plain for the people. Can you make it plain for the people? What is PrEP? Okay, so basically PrEP is just HIV prevention. There is a medication that the FDA has approved that can prevent HIV in the studies and testing that they've done. So if you're in a high-risk situation, 
Um, maybe being a man who has sex with men, um, if you are a transgender female having sex with men, if you're a woman having sex with men, um, and you're not sure just if you can trust your partners, you can be put on a medication that you take once a day, and that will prevent HIV. And it's been working very effectively for individuals that are using it. Now, um, the insurance companies, um, some of them are covering it, but there's also a lot of grants um, that are available in different states and different cities for people who want to access it. Um, there is also a um, grant or I guess I would say payment assistance that is available for individuals through Gilead, which is the company that makes Truvada, which is the HIV prevention medication. Yeah, that's, I mean, talk about a breakthrough in our lifetimes. I remember in the seventh grade, one certain rapper got very sick very quickly and before I knew it was gone. Right. You know what I'm talking about. Yes, I know what you're talking about. There was a lot of discussion surrounding that. And it was scary. It was a scary time to think because sex is such a natural act. It's just a natural progression of a romantic relationship. And those of us who came of age prior to prep, it was kind of terrifying, you know? Very, Um, very terrifying. And unfortunately, although we view sex as a natural part of being a human being, a lot of people um, have a lot of hangups when it comes to their sexuality and being able to express themselves, whether it be their religious or moral beliefs, um, society's expectation, you know, gender bias, you know, if you're a man or or male, male or female, there's so much um, intersection when it comes to this topic that it's very difficult um, to discuss. And the sad part about it is that statistically, African-Americans, men who have sex with men, African-American women, transgender uh, women, basically do not utilize PrEP um, as much Mm -hmm. as their other ethnic counterparts do. And unfortunately, we're the ones who are most heavily burdened by this disease now. Um, The southern region of the United States, the um, transmission rates are off the charts. It's almost like a third world country, unfortunately. And it's due to lack of access, you know? Is it due to lack of access? I mean, so... Help me understand, because I live in Washington State, and I live on the mm-hmm. west west coast, uh, you know, of Washington, western Washington, a pretty progressive area. So I've recently seen things in the news where all these Planned Parenthoods are shutting down, where laws are being passed in some of these states, and it does feel like a third world country. It, it feels like, like, how can people not understand that this is a very basic and very important part of care? Um, so when it comes to access, say somebody has a primary care provider and they live in a state like Georgia, can they just ask them about getting on PrEP as, as, as they're living in a region that has very high transmission rates? Is that enough? Or, I mean, how hard is it? Um, it's very difficult. Um, even in the state where I live of Texas, we had one... 
um, organization that is a FQHC, which is a federally qualified healthcare center, yeah. meaning their focus and their mission is to care for those who are underserved in the community who also have socioeconomic challenges. Yeah. So there was one talk or discussion that we had with the leadership of this particular clinic, and they basically were saying, well, we don't have an HIV problem. And if any, anybody that's listening wants to be able to look at the risk of HIV transmission and what's going on in their community, they can go to AIDSview.org. That's A-I-D-S-V-U-B-U.org. And you can put in your zip code and it will show you the prevalence of HIV in your community. And this particular center was right there, smack dab in the middle with um, the highest rates of transmission in the entire city. So basically, it's not enough. I know uh, patients will may ask their providers, but I believe that the government has new funding that's coming out for 2020, and they want to improve access to care for everyone because the United States just had its highest um, STD rates yes. that have been published in posts with gonorrhea, syphilis, and chlamydia. And, and unfortunately, right. if you have an STD, that puts you at a higher risk of getting HIV. So mm -hmm. it's very important that we have policy behind this. Yeah, and and these are some resistant strains. These are, mm -hmm. um, I'm seeing stuff that not only have I never seen, but not responding to uh, the, the treatment, the current guidelines treatment. So yeah. we're definitely having an issue um, right now. And, and again, I love the teaching that you're doing. You know, having an <laughs> STI puts you at a higher risk for contracting HIV. Um, I, gosh, there's so much I want to I wanna ask, but I, I don't want to get too far ahead of myself. I want to bring up condoms because I feel like Nobody I'm seeing in practice uses condoms anymore. I'll have like one-off couple or, or you know, just random handful of people um, that just prefer that for their birth control. But I find that condom use is way down. A lot of times I hear cost is a reason. And it, you know, it really hurts to hear that because the cost of treating these conditions is so much it's so much more emotionally and uh, monetarily. Are you seeing people still are using condoms? Are condoms still a, um, a, a good way to protect against contracting HIV? And um, yeah, what's, what's with the access to and, and application of <laughs> the use of <laughs> condoms? Yes, I am a supporter of condom use because we're talking about HIV, but there's another virus, which is a herpes virus. Mm -hmm. You can get genital herpes, you know, with skin-to-skin -skin contact. Mm -hmm. And the person does not have to be having an active breakout for that to happen. Mm -hmm. And so one thing that I have researched and um, it has been shown is that condom usage can reduce your chances of getting genital herpes by like 99%. Wow. So not only just for prevention of HIV and other STDs, right. for herpes as well, because that is something that is, uh, there's no cure for it, right. you know, and it's something that 
can take an emotional toll on you and your self-esteem and your whole approach to your sexuality. It can change your life. So that is something that I'm in an active supporter of condom usage. Unfortunately, because of the amount of STDs I see, and it's even higher in my clinic because majority of my patients are men who have sex with men. And we are seeing syphilis, gonorrhea, chlamydia, And we're just giving it out like almost like it's like candy for treatment, you know. Mm -hmm. And my fear is that they may get this multi-drug resistant gonorrhea, syphilis or some other STD that's very difficult to treat. And they could end up having lots of um, severe um, morbidity, meaning disability that could affect them for the rest of their lives, you know. Yeah. Yeah, I could I feel like I could talk about this forever from so many different angles because I did grow up in the church. I did receive the abstinence sexual education. I also became a teen mother because that is not a very effective (laughs) way to educate. Um, And, you know, it's, we're talking about preventative illnesses here. We're not talking about cancer. We're not talking about car accidents. We're not talking about hereditary mental illness. We're talking about things that a lot of times are within our control if we have education and access. So the fact that the numbers are what they are right now, it's just, it's just, it's unbelievable. And and we're not, here's the thing that's really, really wild to me. Because I have kids at home who are 12 and 14, and they can tell you about every sexuality. They can tell you about every kind of preference, stuff I've never heard of and still don't understand no matter how many times they describe it to me. But they don't know about STIs. They don't know about prevention. They don't, you know, I took my older child, my older son to the, uh, to the Walgreens and, uh, down that aisle. Let's talk about the stuff on this aisle. <laughs> the condoms, the lubricant, the plan B, all of this and that. And they don't know unless we teach them. So it is parents. It is schools. It is medical providers. It's like this joint effort because these are things that people don't have to die from. Um, you said something in the last, uh, the last time we spoke, and I just loved it, you said, HIV doesn't kill anybody. Exactly. And it doesn't, you know, and like you said, all of this is preventable. Okay. So in my city of Dallas, the one um, demographic of individuals who are coming up with all these STDs are the ones that are in the age group between 15 and 24. Unfortunately, in Texas, it's abstinence-only teaching. And I didn't know that, you know, the federal government has been putting millions of dollars into this abstinence education, but we're failing our youth with this because obviously it's not working. So I would say for any parent who is um, nervous about having that discussion with their child, find someone that you trust and allow them to have that discussion if you're not able to do it. Because you want to have your child armed with the education that they need and the knowledge that they need to protect themselves. But it's also a part of them being someone who can advocate for themselves sexually, who can negotiate safer sex. You know, there's a Me Too movement that's going on. And I believe a lot of it is because as young people, we were not empowered to make those certain decisions, you know? 
And as a teen mom, I'm pretty sure, you know, you love your child, but you wish you had been armed with that knowledge and that information so you can make a better informed choice, right? It's wild, you know, speaking to about the Me Too movement. It's really wild because I don't think there's a woman who grew up uh, during the time I grew up or before that doesn't have a story like that because... Mm -hmm. We we were not empowered to use our our no. We weren't empowered to use our um, to make conversation, you know. And I hope that kids now are, um, you know, not feeling like you know having unprotected sex is something you have to do to keep a boyfriend or a girlfriend or someone's interest. I have I have my my um sound man over here. <laughs> I'm going <laughs> to borrow you for a second. What do I always tell you when uh, the time comes that you're with a young lady and she's, you know, offended by the fact that you want to use a condom? What do you, what do you say to her? I'm not ready to be a father. Exactly. At least you've been educating and teaching him, you know? <laughs> I'm telling you, there are whole children here because we don't have those the language to, to ask. And it changes ourselves. the lives of those children yeah. indefinitely and the mothers and fathers. Yeah. So I think a lot of this, you know, unfortunately, unwanted pregnancies and stuff like this could be prevented. Mm -hmm. And I think it's just more uh, apparent that we as parents need to educate our um, sons and our daughters, you know, educate our sons that they have to respond and accept her no mm -hmm. at any point in yes. the entire encounter. If she says no, that's it, it's you know. Wrap. It's a wrap. Well, um, yeah, this is. It's it's so interesting that we will defund um, education, <laughs> and then we have this whole medical system and all these medications and things to treat, which are not free. <laughs> you know. So, um, are you aware of any good um, online age appropriate? resources for kids who are learning. I've, I've been the auntie. I've talked to many a child um, about safe sex and, um, you know, reducing risk of STI or becoming a parent. I will say, though, for my own children, it's different. For some reason, we talk and we talk openly, but sometimes when they um, come to me with something, my thoughts are racing. Okay, who are you thinking about? What are you doing? Are you really after, <laughs> your after school program? Or is this, is, am I going to be a grandma? <laughs> you know? And I have to reel myself back in and be like, Devin, just talk to him just like you talk to any kid in clinic. Um, but I think a lot of times it's easy to just play something for them or refer them to um, a certain video or something and then ask them if they have questions. I love the mm -hmm. consent T one because it's cute and funny and it gets the point across using T as the example, right? Do you have right. any for, um, for safe sex, for protection, for AIDS prevention? Yes. I love the example that you say you were refer your uh, kids to a, a movie or a video. And I think it's awesome if you can watch a movie with the children. Yeah. And if there is a protagonist or a character that's going through something, you guys can have a discussion about 
how they're navigating that situation. So I think that's awesome. Um, there is an organization that I have grown to like I'm an ambassador for, which is um, let me get it. American Sexual Health Association. And the um, abbreviation is ASHA, A-S-H-A. And the awesome thing about this organization is they have um, youth-appropriate material, um, even for the younger ones who are um, elementary school age, there's a coloring book that they can use and have a discussion with mom and dad about, you know, uh, identifying their body parts and things of that nature. So I love this organization. I think they have a lot of great resources for parents and um, young teens and um, young children uh, when it comes to educating them about sex. Thank you so much for that. We are, we're coming close to our time. Unfortunately, there's two more things that I just want to get to and ask you. Um, number one, what would you say to the person who is considering getting screened for HIV the first time and the person who um, has a new diagnosis of HIV and is uh, afraid? Yes. So for the individual who's getting screened for HIV the first time, I would say that um, kudos to you for even thinking about that and advocating for yourself, because I think it's great. And I think the idea of just knowing your status and going through with the whole process will make you even more confident in your sexual um, encounters with different individuals because you know that you've been tested and you're either negative or positive and you can make choices based on that. Um, I would count yourself uh, in the small percentage because not a lot of people know where to go to go get tested or not a lot of people think about this whole idea of getting tested for HIV. So I want to commend that person and let them know that you're doing the right thing to protect your community, to protect your um, ones that you're in relationship with or ones that you're having sex with. So I think that's very commendable for that individual. For the individual, individual who um, has just been diagnosed with HIV, I want to let them know that it's okay. You can breathe. You know, we have treatment that's available. You will live a normal lifespan. All you have to do is take this one pill once a day. And it's just like managing someone who has high blood pressure or who has problems with their kidneys. Everything can be managed. You can be a healthy living adult living with HIV. It's not the end of the world. Yeah. And I would tell the individual also you may want to seek out some counseling and different things like that. And also, I would say have one support person that you can disclose this information to and that you can talk with and who can kind of be your sounding board as you go through this process. Yeah. Is there an organization or an online group for people maybe in rural areas or who don't have access to that one person, like a, a maybe a, a virtual support group or something like that? Yes, there is. And I want to say it's online. It's escaping me at the moment. That's okay. We'll edit <laughs> this part out. and then There is one. There's a lot of them online. I can't think of it off the top of my head, but if I email it to you, would you be able to get it to the listeners? Yeah, I'll put it in the show notes. 
Okay. And then I'll, just- I'll email it to you because yeah. I can't think off the top of my mind, but it's one specifically for those living with HIV and um, the people comment on there. They get support from different individuals. If they want to, they are welcome to follow the Dallas HIV Task Force on Facebook, even though it's maybe not pertaining to their demographic or where they're living, there's a lot of helpful tips and things that we put on there. And so um, it, it could be beneficial to them. That's awesome. Shamika, where can people find you both online and in person? Okay. So Shamika B. IDNP, and that's on YouTube. I'm also on Facebook and LinkedIn as well. So you can find me in all three of those platforms. And I'll make sure to put those links in the show notes. Thank you so much for joining me for this so very important conversation. I'm still kind of processing some of the statistics in some parts of our nation. But the great thing about podcast, the great thing about YouTube, the great thing about the internet in general is that we can reach people that otherwise may not have access to this type of education. They may not get it through school. They may not get it from mom and daddy, but it's out here and it's available. So I encourage anyone who's listening um, to share uh, the episode, look in the show notes, send some links because um, it's almost like we're going backwards and y'all, we have a way to prevent HIV. So there's no reason for us to be (laughs) going backwards. Shamika, it's been such a pleasure talking with you. Yes, I've enjoyed myself as well. And I hope that the listeners really find this very helpful for them as they go forward in, you know, dealing with their different sexual encounters and just living life, you know? So this has been wonderful. Did you want to speak at all about your Incure You Wellness? Are are your doors open? I know um, there was some website stuff we talked about uh, when we talked previously. Can they find, where can they find your business and, and what are you doing with your business these days? Yeah, so we just opened officially. Um, so you can go to incurewellnesscenter.com. And if I mess up the uh, web address, I'll get the correct link. <laughs> but um, you can schedule and book appointments there. If you're in the Dallas surrounding area, that's where the clinic is. And also, we also do video visits as well. That's so awesome. um, basic primary care stuff, we do everything. And also, we do screening for STIs or STDs. And also, we are a gender-affirming clinic. So hormone therapy is something that we also provide if you're considering transition as well. That's wonderful. I, I'm so excited for the listeners to connect with you because it's almost like, you know, the Underground Railroad sometimes finding the people <laughs> who are there to help you, not harm you, you know? Right. And I want to give them the light. I want to give them the information because I am I work on, you know, on the hospital side as well. Yeah. And, and we're seeing a lot of young African-American men and Latino men that are dying from AIDS-related illness. Oh. And these men are less than 25 years of age. So um, it's very important that we get this information out there. Yes, it is. Well, thank you for sharing today. I look forward to talking to you more later. (laughs) All right. Thank you so much.
you for listening to The Purple Stethoscope. I'm your host, Devin Nixon, family nurse practitioner. You can find me on social media at D the NP. That's on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and now Patreon. If you like what you heard, go ahead and share this episode and then head over to Patreon to see how you can further support this work. Thank you.